0: If you don't have your Bible with you, you'll find the text printed in the worship folder. You'll also find an outline there to help you follow along. So on Christmas Day, it should come as no surprise to you. Then we're going to focus on our Savior, and we're even going to think about His birth. Think about how it was that He came. We've got four different Gospel accounts, and each one gives us a little something different. Matthew decided, well, I'll go all the way back to the beginning. And so in Matthew we find the the begats, right? Abraham begat Isaac, begat Jacob, on and on. Matthew then tells the story of the birth, and Matthew has this account of the wise men and their visit. Mark has no birth account. He begins with John the Baptist and with Jesus' baptism, and launches immediately into Jesus' ministry. Luke gives us the most coverage on Jesus' birth. He provides the prophecies actually of two births, of of John the Baptist being born and of Jesus being born. has a beautiful section about the angel's visit to Mary and her response uh, to God giving her uh, a part in this. Um, And then we have, have the birth. And in Luke, we've also got the account of the shepherds. And then John. Well, when you get to John, you realize that Matthew only thought he was going back to the beginning. Because when you get to John, there was no beginning for Jesus. In the beginning, he already was. And while John might not give us Bethlehem and a manger... And shepherds and wise men, I think he actually gives us far more, and it's an, an amazing look at the incarnation of of God becoming man, of how the eternally existent Son broke into history, and what it really means for for God to be born as a human. with a a real live body. John 1 is a a glorious text. And so I spent a lot of time this week narrowing down (laughs) what could we possibly cover in a few moments together on Sunday morning. And so I narrowed it down to five verses. So we're just going to look at verses 14 through 18. And then I finally narrowed it down to a list of five things that I just want us to consider this Christmas Day about the incarnation from this text And I've got a lovely slide with those five things listed for you. But fortunately, they're also on your outline. Uh, What we think about first, revelation, and then presence, glory, this beautiful tension that is in this passage and in the incarnation and in the gospel itself. And finally, we'll look at fullness. So if you're able, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. As I read for us, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, these are the very words of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. May God bless the the teaching and the hearing of His inspired infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would You come this day and would You show us the glory of the Son even as He has made You known by taking on flesh. Would You show us this beautiful tension that exists and would You change and transform us by it. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So I've got this list of five things and I tried to put them in order as we get to them in the text. But some of these things are, are overlapping and interconnected that we're going to have to jump around a little bit. And we're actually going to start at the very last half of the last verse as we consider this first point and how the incarnation provides for us revelation so look at the end of verse 18 there the very last phrase he has made him known right so this is the essence of the incarnation this is why it had to happen jesus is born as a baby human so that we can know what God is like. Right? Because you know from the Old Testament that that no one can see God and live. And even from this verse 18, right? No one has, no one has seen God. But the problem there is that God is a God who longs to be known. He's not a God who's trying to hide Himself from us. He desires for us to know Him. And so, to use the language of of John Calvin, because he writes beautifully about this in, in some of his commentaries and in the Institutes, he writes about the great condescension of God, of how He condescends to our weakness. Because even our even our understanding, even our minds have been weakened by the fall. And even if they hadn't been, our minds would still be finite, and he's eternal. But he longs to reveal himself to us. He longs to be known and to show us what he's like. And so he does that in the incarnation. See, he did it through creation. He did it through the Scriptures. He's given us His Word. But the very pinnacle, when He pulled out all the stops, He says, how will I get them to understand what I'm like? In an unbelievable stooping low so that we might understand it, He takes on flesh. So now jump back up to verse 14. The Word became flesh and there's a crudeness to that word flesh like he could have said the word became a man could have even said the word took on a body but there's something even more stark and more crude about he took on flesh he subjected himself to to disease and sickness and mortality. But this is what it would take if we were going to see what God is like. If the Son was going to make Him known, which He has. So that's the first thing on our list is revelation. The second thing is presence. Continuing in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, presence is such a huge deal in the Bible. God's desire has always been to be present with His people, just like in the garden. Right? He was present. He was with them. But see, presence has always been our problem, too. It's always been His desire and it's always been our problem. Because He desires to be present with us, but because of our sin and our rebellion and our unbelief, we're unfit for His presence. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that He could be present with us. Many of you know, if you've, if you've heard many uh, teachings on John 1, you know that this, this verb here for dwelt literally means to pitch one's tent. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. For God's people, this tent language would have immediately said, hmm, this is causing me to think about uh, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, right? all of these places where you could meet with God, where you could experience His presence. If you were uh, with us the first half of this year in the adult Sunday school class, uh, we went through Leviticus together, right? Right? Which talks so much about the tabernacle and talks so much about God's presence. And and the tabernacle was set up in the middle of the camp at God's design. It's like He moved into the neighborhood so that He could be present with His people. And so, for the Son to come and to pitch His tent among us means that He's giving us a means by which we can experience the presence of God. But if we pay close attention in Scripture, we see how the Lord Jesus actually, He owns this for Himself. He personalizes this concept of this pitching His tent, of of being a means by which we can experience the presence of God. He knew that He was the meeting place with God. He knew that He in Himself was the means by which we would experience God's presence. And so later on in John 4, when he's talking with the woman at the well, and she's you know, trying to create distractions and avoid the main point, and she brings up this age-old argument, should, should we worship at the temple here, or should we worship at the temple over there? I need to know. And he stops her and he says, Lady, the day's coming. The day's coming when you're not going to worship in a temple over there or a temple over here. You're going to worship in spirit and truth. He knew he was talking about himself. After Jesus cleanses the temple, overturns the tables, throws out the money changers, the Jews demand a sign. Give us a sign. Jesus says, alright, I'll give you a sign. Tear down this temple... (gasps) And in three days, I'll rebuild it. And of course, he was talking about himself. Jesus came to pitch his tent with us, to be present with us, and also to be the means by which we experience God's presence. Point three, glory. Still in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory. Now, all the Gospels take a different approach to the birth of Christ, to the coming of Christ, to the beginning of His ministry. They all take a different approach, but they all give us glory. Think about the glory in Matthew as these wise men are are bowing prostrate before this toddler. Glory. Glory. Even Mark, who doesn't give us a Christmas story, gives us the baptism where the heavens are parted open. This is my Son, comes the voice from heaven. I'm well pleased. Right? There's glory. Certainly in Luke, when the angel is appearing to the shepherds, and the multitude of the heavenly host. glory to God in the highest. Because this baby has been born. And here in John, Oh, here in John, how He has stooped low. How He has condescended and humbled Himself even in that. Because of that. Glory. What kind of a king would do that? What kind of a king would leave His throne? What other world religion has a God Who would make Himself vulnerable and small. None. None. We have seen His glory. And part of His glory is this marvelous tension that's revealed. And this this is where we'll spend maybe the bulk of our time. This glorious One who took on flesh and pitched His tent with us is full of... Of grace and truth. It's a seeming contradiction. Because, in a real sense, grace and truth are are opposites. One is forgiving, the other is exacting. How can you balance one with the other? How can you have the demands that truth places and the forgiveness that grace promises? Is it sometimes he's gracious and sometimes he's truthful and demanding? And y'all, this is this is a deep, this is an important question. Like for the ages. Because folks, when it comes to God, folks are always trying to pit one of his natures against another. Or elevating one versus another. Man, I'm down with a God of love, but I don't know so much about a God of justice. And and see, the the problem comes in, I think, in thinking in terms of balance. If He's full of grace and truth, and we're, we're trying to get it just right so that He's got just enough grace, but not too much, and just enough and i think that's where we where we stray a bit and i think that thinking of these things in intention is much better it's not as easy but it is the better way it's a both and at the same time absolutely truthful and absolutely gracious absolutely a god of love and holy at the same time and so we see this glorious tension in the sun and as a result we see that glorious tension in the gospel itself right that's what the gospel is is a glorious tension of how can god be holy and loving At the very same time, how can he be merciful but also just? And in the gospel, he can. In the tension that exists in the gospel, he absolutely can. He can be truth with exacting demands, he can say, This is how it must be. And at the very same time, he can be gracious. And He can say, this is how it must be and I know that you're weak and broken and you can't do it. And so not only will I do it for you, I'll pay the debt that you accrued by not being able to do it yourself. That's the, that's the tension. It's both and. He can be just and merciful only because the justice was completely poured out on Him while we receive mercy. And so this glorious tension that is the Gospel, where these things are true at the very same time, and they're absolutely true, they're 100% true, it's not a 50-50 balance, it's completely true, this tension will change your life. If you trust it. If you place your faith in the fullness of this one who took on flesh. Right? Because he is holy. And we have offended his holiness. With our unbelief. With our rebellion. With our sin. And we've earned death. And He is a God of love. We were so bad that the Son of God had to die, but we are so loved in the Son that He was willing to do it. Both and. Neither one has to diminish the other. In the Gospel, they both retain all of their integrity. No compromise is made. And the more that you and I can get our heart and mind wrapped around what it means to be loved like that. To have the Son of God willingly, gladly go to the cross and die. To come from heaven, to leave his throne, to take on flesh, to live in our fallen world, to go to the cross and die. All of it gladly, all of it willingly, because he loves you that much. That's the incomprehensible love Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3. When he's praying, earnestly praying that the Ephesians would somehow come to the place where they could know and understand the width and the height and the depth and the length of this love that surpasses knowledge. He's praying that for them because he knows it will change their lives if they could just begin to grasp it. So here's an important point, I guess by means of application, I think. As we're growing in Christ's likeness, as we're being conformed to his image, we will grow in both of these areas. It says our Savior, it says the Son is full of grace and truth, right? So as we grow, as we're being conformed to his likeness, that means we're going to grow in grace and in truth. But until we reach the perfection of heaven, every single one of us is going to err on one side or the other, either being truthful at the expense of grace, saying this is how it is, or, this this is it, it's the only way, or, right? But we could. Also, be gracious at the expense of truth. Oh, well, you know, what's true for me, I don't guess has to be true for everybody. Can't we just all get along? Right? Let there be peace on earth. Let it begin in me. Right? But see, Jesus was full of both, he sacrificed neither the other because both are essential we got to have both right it would not be gracious if we failed to insist on truth while it's leading somebody to ruin and destruction what is gracious about that but i imagine as good presbyterians that that's not our biggest problem, I bet our biggest problem might be erring on the other side of being so right and insistent on the fact that we're right, that there's not a lot of grace to be found and that a lot of specks become planks And that, quite frankly, we're just forgetful that maybe this right truth that I'm clinging to, in all of its rightness, I didn't always hold to that. I didn't always see that. I didn't always believe that or know that. It was revealed to me, it was given to me by God's grace that I'm now reluctant to extend to others you only have to read through the gospels and see this beautiful tension on display in the word jesus do you see how he dealt with people does he ever once come close to compromising truth and the broken people are flocking to him They can't get enough of Jesus. Oh, that He would change us by His grace. That He would cause us to be people of grace and truth. And change is exactly what He does. Our final point. Fullness. So the glorious Son who took on flesh and pitched His tent among us We've seen his glory. He's full of grace and truth. Look at 16 and 17 again. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. He's so full, he's overflowing, and we're the recipients, we're the beneficiaries. Grace on top of grace. How desperately we need that gift. How desperately. And so I love what he does in in 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So so is the law then the opposite of grace? Is that how we should see this? No, because it said he's given us grace on top of grace. Or grace after grace. Grace upon grace. The law was absolutely gracious. What a gracious gift from the Lord that we might know what He requires. That we might know what He's like and what He expects. You know, some of these world religions out there, and you see the the pictures of of these folks at at these temples and these altars. Man, and they're doing all kinds of crazy sacrifices. Because they have no idea whether or not their God will be pleased with them or not. They have no idea if their sacrifice will be accepted, if their gods will be appeased. God, in His grace, gave us His law. He gave us instruction. He said, This is my good and wise holy law. Your life will go well if you live by it. It's quite gracious. But the law is grace in a different way than Jesus is grace. The law was a gift, but the Son was a greater gift. See, the law has no power to change your heart, the law can't do anything to fix brokenness and weakness and inability. But here's what the law can do. The law can break us. The law can bring us quickly to an end to ourselves. The point of the law is to get us to the point where we say, ugh, I can't do the law. It's too hard. It's impossible. Who could possibly meet its requirements? No one. No one. And so the law prepares us to need a Savior. The law prepares us for our need of rescue. Jesus brings grace and truth. And He doesn't do it by minimizing the law. He does it by fulfilling it. Dotting every I, crossing every T. For 33 years on this earth, perfect obedience. Perfect trust in His Father. Tempted in every way yet without sin. So that His fullness could overflow to us. We've received from His He's revealed God to us. He's made a way for us to be present with God. He's shown us His glory. He promises to save and transform us through this beautiful tension. He lavishes grace on top of grace. Praise be to Christ. Christ. The Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, to you, Christ, we do say glory. We exalt you in this place. We lift our hearts up to you. You're worthy. You are the baby who was born to become the Lamb who would be slain. To become the ascended King of all kings sitting at the Father's right hand ruling and reigning and even interceding for us. You are great and greatly to be praised. There is none like You, O Christ. We praise You this day. We pray that through this glorious tension that You embodied fully and perfectly that You'd come and You would save us and You would transform us. We pray all these things in Your name and for Your sake, Amen.